Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put on events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. And on this show, we take a horror trope, rip it apart, and build a whole season where we talk about that trope through a selection of films. Basically, that's a roundabout way to say that we talk about horror movies in excruciating depth. Occasionally, alongside our main series, which currently is all about teen horror, we also review new horror films or series. And we just could not ignore the release of Mike Flanagan's long-gestating passion project, the existential, moving piece of horror filmmaking, Midnight Mass, a miniseries which landed on Netflix just last Friday. I'm joined in this episode with fellow Flanna fan, writer and broadcaster Louise Blaine to talk about Midnight Mass. We had covered The Haunting of Bly Manor together as well, Flanagan's previous horror miniseries, and I really do encourage you to check out that episode. It's a lovely one, if I dare say so myself. But before Louise and I dive into our review, quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Final Goes UK for updates, event announcements, and horror memes. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work and get occasional bonus episodes if I am not drowning in other work. <laughs> and if you can take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcast for this podcast, it really, really helps a lot, especially for people to discover the show. As with all of the reviews that we do, the first part of the episode will be spoiler-free and there will be a very, very clear demarcation of the spoiler section. You will have time to pause and run away before anything crucial is revealed, don't worry. And with this one, I really encourage you to see the whole series and come back to the episode if you want to listen to the spoilerific part of it. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Midnight Mass. Louise, welcome back. It's been too long. It has been a very long time, Anna. How are you? I am. I am. You are. But I am existing. But I was thinking, because we were just chit-chatting about Mike Flanagan. The last time, I think you were my, my Mike Flanagan correspondent. That's... We should make this official. Okay, I can be your official Flanagan correspondent. That's fine. Everyone <laughs> really liked the fact that we argued, especially sweetly, about Bly Manor, <laughs> in which I feel like I slightly swayed you, even though you didn't like it. I still swayed you a bit. And I take that as a victory. You did. You absolutely swayed me a bit. And I remember that conversation very, very fondly. People do really like it. Like, it's a. I find it very interesting to disagree on something. But when you know, you don't evolve, like don't devolve into just yelling yes. things that you don't like or that you like. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did discover at Fright Fest a couple of weeks ago, I think because I hadn't been to like a real event in 18 months mm. and you begin, your world shrinks, right? So suddenly all the movies you watch, you watch on your own on the sofa, or if you're lucky, you're watching with someone in your bubble. But suddenly when you are then surrounded by people, 
you're like, oh, people like different things from me and subjectivity is a thing. And we can get out of a film and go, well, I didn't like that. And someone will go, yeah, I really loved that. That was great. And it's fine. Subjectivity is a wonderful thing. So it was a really nice subjectivity in action, which is what I discovered at Fright Fest. So I, it's not that I wasn't patient about everyone's likes and dislikes before, but it was nice to see coming out of a movie and then going, oh, that was fucking terrible. What do you mean? I loved that. <laughs> so, yes. I'm here for this. It is quite fun. I do miss that a lot, even though I've been able to like go to screenings and stuff. But yeah, those those gut reactions to something, especially horror films. I do sometimes wish, I don't know if you get this, but like something like this, like The Haunting of Hill House or The Haunting of Bly Manor and now Midnight Mass, like these epic horror series that Mike Flanagan has been doing over the past two years. Three years? Four years? How old is Hell The man's House? been productive. He has been productive. He has. He's, he's a busy man. I almost wish we could watch him on a big screen. I would love to watch all of his shows on the big screen. They have such a lovely cinematic quality to them as well. I was very excited to watch Midnight Mass. And I really savoured it. Yes. And I'm excited to talk about it with you. Because I think... Spoiler alert, we might actually agree on this one. I think we do. I think we do Oh my agree. god. I think we agree. Shock horror! <laughs> We're going to agree on <laughs> I mean, I mean, we could say it at the same time. I approve of Midnight Mass. Do you approve of Midnight Mass, Anna? I approve of Midnight Mass. Oh, there we go. We agree. Oh my god. Oh, people are going to stop listening oh, now. No. They're like, Come well, back. these are not going to argue. Stay. We're, 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 I'm sure we'll find some faults. Don't worry. We will, we, in fact, we both know we're going to find some faults. It's fine. I'm sure we're going to disagree on something. Might yes. be minute, but I'm sure we're going to disagree on yeah, something very sweetly. Mm-hmm. Very sweetly. But as we usually do with conversations around new releases, the first part of the conversation will be spoiler-free for anyone who's not watched Midnight Mass yet or not watched the entirety of it, might watch like one or two episodes. Um, and then we'll clearly separate the spoilerific conversation. We'll go into the detail of the show and the ending of it. But before we go into spoilers, Louise, what is Midnight Mass about? Can you summarize the the series for us? Yes. So Midnight Mass is a series that's set on a very small island called Crockett Island, where only 127 people live. And it focuses on a man called Riley, who has just got out of prison after a horrible act. And he's back staying with his family on this tiny island. And the islanders as you can tell from the title this has a religious theme um they all go to church and at the same time as riley arriving um a new pastor has arrived um because the previous pastor uh, is has is sick after being on a after being on a, on his travels so a new pastor has arrived so and at the same time and where this is not a spoiler in the fact that riley's previous one of his previous connections from the island is also there so it's suddenly people returning back home to the place they grew up which are very small small town things very isolated and because this is a mike flanagan show we know that there are supernatural things that will begin to happen on the island and that's kind of as far as i would like to go really that's that's a very good summation of it. So 
I think perhaps we should start with talking a little bit about Mike Flanagan and how this fits into his work so far. And, you know, what should we call it? The Flaniverse? Wow, it sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The guys created a universe and I like I'm going to call it a cinematic universe even though he's made quite a few series because for I mean personally I've spoken about this over the years many times like I don't see a separation um in terms of the effort and the work and the presentation that goes into a series of this scope and level that is designed as a story to be told from beginning to end it's just presented to us through a streaming service. But you can't tell me this isn't cinematic. No. So it's, it's a wonderful, it, it feels like a giant treat. Loading up the first episode of a Flanagan TV series, you're like, I'm in this for seven hours. And it is going to be yes. of an, of, you already know the level it's going to be at. Whether you enjoy the full experience or not, you understand that his intentions are to mix the human condition and horror in such a way that you will be absolutely emotionally annihilated <laughs> if he does it right. <laughs> so where thing. does this, where does Midnight Mass then fit in the Flanniverse? Well, I didn't know this, and maybe you did. I didn't know that he's been working on this for a really long time, to the point where there is the book of Midnight Mass in Gerald's game, and there is the book in, am I right in saying she's holding it in Hush? Yes. So literally, Kate... Siegel, who is his wife, right? They're married. Mm-hmm. Um, is holding this this book. It's literally been his passion project for years, and the fact that he's finally had a chance to make it in amongst gosh knows what else he's working on, and Doctor Sleep, and Hush, mm. and all these other things. But I think I feel like this. You can feel like this is something that he's been working on for a long time. It's very precise. I actually find it it was funny, before Stephen King tweeted out the other day how much he liked it, I thought it was the most Stephen King piece of work that Mike Flanagan's done, which is especially strong given the fact that he made Doctor Sleep, <laughs> you know? And Gerald's game, which was yeah. long considered to be unadaptable. He nails that humanity that King has. He really does. And like there's a lot of similarities and I'm sure we'll we'll kind of talk about them in a bit, but I, I find that I I found out after Midnight Mass kind of came out and I was reading more about it, it all of those appearances in his previous work are true and he he's clearly it's intensely personal. You can notice it because he's directed and written most of the episodes, if not all, um, of the seven episodes, which is a lot of work and usually doesn't necessarily happen in a series of this scope. But it also feels like he had to make all the films that he's made and both of the series that he's made in order to get in order to get to the point to make Midnight Mass, both in terms of where he is in terms of clout, but also of his storytelling. Yeah. Like this feels like a culmination of things that were being developed in all of his work. There's I especially found I mean I need. To, I think I'm going to rewatch Hill House actually, because as we know, Bly. It, it, I mean, Hill House. I sobbed about Hill House. I Bly absolutely annihilated me emotionally. <laughs> but I don't think the first time I watched Hill House, I really appreciated that level of interwoven 
storytelling and horror and that's the thing that he does so well and mm. I think it's what people get wrong about horror a lot of the time is they're like oh horror's gore and horror's jumps and it's like no actual horror is addressing really human issues and bringing in the supernatural element into them but making mm. you understand that the humanity is also the problem you know we still suffer from humanity's problems of mortality regardless of supernatural entities and I think that's what he's so good at reminding us of and as I think as I get older and wiser and experience aging suddenly all of his stuff just hits really differently mm. so what did you make of the of the horror elements of midnight mass i thought they are gloriously subtle for the first few episodes but i thought it was really interesting and he falls into it's not a trap in so much as when you get to maybe closer to the end of an episode you know that there's going to be a little horror element in there but what he does is he does a one-two punch. <laughs> so there's one horror bit. And then there's the horror bit that knocks you out. And then there's the credits. And you're just like, okay, okay, I need to watch the next one now. But I might need a break and a cup of tea first. Because holy shit. <laughs> so the horror is there. I think some people who maybe haven't maybe watched Flanagan's previous work might find it a bit slow. Um, because he mm -hmm. certainly takes his time. He takes us to church, literally. But when that when that fear happens, oh my gosh. It is it is devastatingly scary. I found it extremely effective because it felt like this. It is extremely slow burn. Like yeah. anyone who's not interested in character or dialogue, <laughs> um, <laughs> or like intense but slow moving stories that center characters will will not enjoy this. No. But I kind of wish that they'd give it a try because it feels like a lullaby. Like it lulls you into a sense of comfort and then delivers the horror yeah. scares or the gore. Like it it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it is extremely, um, I found it extremely effective because it was so dosed out yeah. kind of perfectly. Yeah, It always reminded you when you started getting a little bit too comfortable with the nuances of the relationships between the characters it reminded you that you're still watching a horror f a horror series. Yeah. Which is the best thing. Like, the fact that if you and I can sit and watch a horror series and slightly forget. <laughs> you know, it's like that human desire where you're like, I don't know about you, but I watch Titanic. And even when I watch Titanic now and it's approaching the iceberg, <laughs> I want, I'm so into that movie that I still want the Titanic to miss. <laughs> You know, and then I'm like, no, I'm watching a movie about the most infamous disaster of, of a liner in hundreds of years, but I still want it to miss. So he gives you that, like, I, I want these people to be okay. I want this these people to have happy endings. And that's what's hard, because you know that that's probably not going to happen. And we mentioned Stephen King a little bit before, but I mean, this is not, this is an original Mike Flanagan project. This is not based on any existing property. Um, but Mike Flanagan has adapted Stephen King before, even like, you know, the the marriage of Stephen King and, and Stanley Kubrick's Shining in Doctor Sleep, I found, it, and it must be an extremely daunting task for any filmmaker, and that film worked extremely for me as both a King fan and a fan of The Shining, but a lot of people have been comparing it to Stephen King. How do you think Midnight Mass kind of takes elements of Stephen King? I think the thing that Stephen King does so well is he makes us care. And that's the big thing. Is Stephen King actually has a lot of heart. And people forget that. But he has a, an awful lot of heart. And his characters have to mm -hmm. have happy times in order to have sad times. Which is that wonderful balance of Stephen King characters. Because they are in depth. To the point where 
I reread um, Christine <laughs> the other, and it takes three hundred pages before the car kills anybody. <laughs> three hundred pages, you know that. You know, that's quite a long time, right? So you, that's a lot of time getting to know these characters before the car goes and does the thing that you know it's going to do because it's an evil car, you know, it's a haunted. But but that's what it does. So it gives you that time. It gives you these characters. It introduces them properly. But I also think what Stephen King does so well, and I think that Flanagan reflects, is the idea of a small town and small town mentalities and people's being stuck in their ways. And especially what I think this addresses a lot of the time, it's got multiple subtexts and talking about, you know, the, the the far right and conspiracy theorists. I think there's a lot of that in here too, wound into its religious allegory. Um, and I think that's what Stephen King does particularly well. And that's what Flanagan takes from here is he takes this, here's this small town, we're going to introduce everyone. You're going to understand the geography so that once you understand the layout, you can understand how to destroy it. Which is, I don't think is a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's an extremely vague illusion. Um, I think the other thing that screams Stephen King at me is the sense of regret. Um, there's there's several characters, like you mentioned in your summation of Midnight Mass, that kind of return to the town that they desperately wanted to escape. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that it's it's you know our main character Riley and um oh my god Kate Siegel's character what's her Aaron. name? It's our main character, Riley and Erin, which is Kate Siegel's character. But they, there is this, there is like this hanging regret over them from the first moment we meet them. Not just Riley dealing with the thing that happened in his past, which is presented very early on. You know, he's just come out of jail. He um, killed a girl um, because he he was drunk driving, and is dealing with the with the weight of that guilt. And Erin's story unfolds a little bit slower in the show, but there is that sense of like they did not plan to come back to this place that they know so well that they escaped. And there's a, there's a resistance from both ends. They don't really want to be here, but they know that this is the only place that will take them back. And it made me think of so many of King's novels, you know, from It to... Um, Dreamcatcher, mm-hmm. which is not the best one, no. but it deals with yeah. the same thing. The short story, The Body, which became Stand by Me. Um, there is the sense of like nostalgia and resentment towards a hometown that is I identify so much with King, and and his storytelling that is always looming around Midnight Mass for me. That's really interesting about returning to that home, and I think it is that idea of the small town that runs the way it always did. You know, that's a very mm. King thing of, especially in this, like Riley's dad goes out and he goes onto the boats and everybody, it's almost like it's stuck in a time capsule of this idea of what mm. this town is and then returning to it. And then obviously sitting in the middle of it is this church. You know, sitting in the middle there is this church and that's it becomes the centre of our story. And I don't feel like, mm. I think it's very bold in its treatment of religion. I think it doesn't mm-hmm. shy away from its treatment of religion. I don't think it shies away also from its treatment of and or mistreatment of Islam. I think it does some really interesting things topically that a lot of people might say is quite on the nose, but I do feel like had to be said a lot of the time. So it's not subtle in some of its themes at all. Um, but I do mm. think, I almost think it's fine because those things need to be said out in the open, if that makes sense. 
Do you want to expand on that or do you feel like that's more suited for the spoiler section? I feel like it's a spoiler. It's a spoiler, I'm afraid. But before I get into that, this the way that it's been presented and even for the very first episode, religion is at it's front and center. It's there in the name. It's there in everything that's been promoted about the series. And the church is the epicenter of Crockett and I'd say the most mysterious character that we meet from the start is the preacher, Father Paul, Paul Hill, who's played by Hamish Linklater in this. And how do you think this kind of uses the, what we expect from religious horror? I think it does a really interesting job of you having no idea initially what you're actually watching. And it takes a long time to do that. Um, Because I felt like the first time when I watched it, I watched... I watched it in two settings. I watched four episodes and then three episodes. And I think while I was even in the third episode, I felt like I had been to church a number of times and I had no idea what I was looking at because certain things were, of course, focused on. But you're like, why is that relevant? And how's this relevant? And how does this happen? And why does this? But the whole time you are being, you're not being preached to in any capacity, but you are regularly visiting church in a way that I don't think I have. And I mean, normally religious horror is held for, I mean, the the role of the church in The Exorcist or the role of the church in The Omen. You know, these are very clear. We are come to exorcise your demons. And that's kind of horror's purpose, Mm. uh, religion's purpose in horror. So suddenly seeing the other side of that and seeing the sort of the behaviour of people as they go to church and what they talk about and the systems at work, we don't normally see that. These are normally tacked on extras. For this to be the core of it is actually a really interesting fresh take. And maybe I've just not watched enough religious iconography and horror, but it certainly feels like that's normally just a role to exercise the bads. I think it might even be more appropriate to say that it kind of centers faith a bit more than religion. Like it's obviously rooted in um, Catholicism um, and Christian iconography and and the the kind of the stories uh, on the text of the Bible every single episode is kind of named after a book in the bible um yep actually what you're describing and what i also felt watching the show is that a big part of the questions that the show was asking itself or that mike flanagan perhaps has been asking himself either in his life or through his work was actually questions of faith and faith is extremely individual and faith yeah and how it fits into an organized religion with all its accoutrement and its rituals and its hierarchies and its power dynamics as well are two very different tensions. And I felt like the show gave mm-hmm. us so many characters who, and so much space for those characters to talk about both religion and faith at the same time. And they don't necessarily mean the same thing. So I'm, you know, yeah. I'm not a religious person. I'm I'm not I I don't attach myself to any religion or particular faith. But I'm always very fascinated how faith, which is such an individual thing that can be quite co-opted and presented as a as a proselytizing text or an evangelical type text, especially um religions that are kind of part of an organized system. Seeing that on screen as an investigation of faith without feeling or seeming preachy to people who don't necessarily share that faith is a very difficult tightrope to walk on 
And if you're trying to make that into an entertaining and scary horror product as well, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that is a lot of work. It is a lot of work because I am the same as you. I don't associate myself with any particular religion. I am not a person who has ever I've been brought up um, with in very, very godless, godless um, upbringing. But I think I found it utterly compelling and I would be really interested to see what people of people who have a strong faith feel like when they watch and I, but I also don't feel like it's particularly I don't feel like it's offensive I don't think the way people's individual faith works and how they read a certain text of the bible and I don't believe that translation on screen here is offensive in any capacity to them because as you say People, faith is entirely individual and how people approach their religion, even within one church or within one faith, is completely, uh, uh, I mean, subjective. Mm. Again, like our taste in horror, you know, so I think but I think it will be very interesting. I think there'll be some interesting uh, texts come out of this about how people feel exactly about his treatment of, of a god. Absolutely. And, and even within the show, there's moments in the show where even the people attending this one small church in one small town have very different approaches to faith and they're part of the same congregation they believe in the same god in the same um in the same church and they're having they're having different interpretations and relationship with the same god and i felt that like it yeah. the, i think the show gives a lot of space for a lot of different approaches to um to faith to coexist without getting into conflict yeah. with one another or with the audience. Yeah. I think that's that's a, our long-winded way of saying that if someone feels like they're going to get preached to by a horror show, they're not going to get preached. But No, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because we would be angry. <laughs> if we had been preached to, we would be angry. <laughs> um, I feel like we're, we really want to talk about stuff, but it feels very spoilerific to talk about it. Um, yeah. So before we move into spoilers, shall we talk a little bit about the performances or the characters? Because I think at the center of it, and the person who is, I think, new to the Flanniverse is the priest, Hamish Linklater. He's amazing. He has the most interesting, he has the most interesting face. <laughs> yeah. The most interesting face. And he reminds me, I think, did I say to you that he looks, he's like the awkward middle stage Pokemon <laughs> between David Schwimmer, but I couldn't remember who else. And you suggested Dustin Hoffman. Yes. Um, and it might be that, but he had, honestly, I couldn't not, I couldn't not look at his face. He's so compelling. He's amazing. He is extraordinary. Had you ever seen him in anything before? No, I hadn't seen him. He was fresh to me. So he actually felt genuinely quite exciting because I'd never seen him before. That must be amazing to watch, to never have seen an actor before and have him see him for the first time in a role where he gets so much room to play with and such a rich character as well. Yeah. What One thing that I found very interesting, because I, I avoided the trailer, but I did see the teaser for, for Midnight Mass before watching the show. And I'd seen, I'd been a fan of Hamish Linklater for a while now, but it, he's I've not seen him in that much stuff and as much stuff as I'd like to see him in. And I was like, oh, they're going creepy, 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 creepy priest vibes. I'm into that. I'm into creepy. It's easy for you yeah, to well, say. Yeah, well, it clearly is not easy for me to say, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I love a creepy priest. I love a sort of, you know, I love the devils. Give me a bit more of that. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's so much more than that. Like, it's, he's the most mysterious character in the show, but he's, for me, the one with the most depth as well. And in no way does he go in any direction that can be predicted. No. And yet, while his directions cannot be predicted, his arc is perfect. Yes. His arc is perfect. Because he perfectly, from episode one to the end of episode seven, he is perfect. Which is incredible for a character that you have no idea who they are for a long time. And what they mean and what what they want from the world. But he... Is he's a flawless guy. He's one of the most interesting characters I think of uh, that I've seen on TV in any series for for years. He's really genuinely fascinating. That's big words. Genuinely, fa- but then yes, I can't see any more really. But I find him constantly genuinely fascinating. I feel like we should move into spoilers to properly dig into this. Is there anything you yes. want to mention before we go into spoilerific territory? No. But no, no. All I can say is that if you haven't watched it and you've listened to that and thought that it's intriguing, just watch it. Just watch it and just mainline it in as fast as possible. Because I have a horrible feeling that people are going to gif things and it's going to ruin it for you. Because I have a feeling that some people aren't going to react well to some sequences because mm. they'll—I don't know what they'll think—but they'll be wrong. So don't let anyone spoil this for you because it's worth clearing your schedule for. Mute midnight mass on Twitter. Don't look at reviews and just watch it. So let's move into spoilerific territory now. (laughs) We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend the more brittle we become. The easier to break. That wasn't an act of God. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say why, why, why. I don't understand. I'm ready. So let me pick you up on something you just mentioned. You said that there was a couple of scenes that people might not react well to and that they would be wrong. What are you referring to? The fact that that's not an evil. (laughs) (laughs) So I believe that some people might see those sequences of that very Nosferatu style vampire and go, well, that's fucking stupid. (laughs) But they would be wrong. They are incorrect. 
But I, th- I do think it will split people. I do think those beautiful arched demonic wings spreading in that church, which literally gave me absolute goosebumps. And even have go- I have goosebumps now thinking of it because it's some of the most beautiful, monstrous imagery. But I think some people will, I think people will gif it and go, oh, this looks silly. I do feel like uh, uneducated people will not like that. I am gonna give this part of the conversation because I did. Don't, because I'm not wearing any makeup. I did not expect you to go full savage this early on, Louise Blaine. <laughs> I just, I just don't think people. I, I think people will be mean. I think people might be mean, and I don't want them to be mean because I feel fiercely protective of that. Reveal. Don't be mean to the angel vampire. Yeah, don't be mean to him. He's amazing. <laughs> he's a t- sweet baby angel, but he's not. <laughs> Oh, there is nothing sweet or baby no, about that angel. Beast. That angel is a tough <laughs> yeah, motherfucker. Um, that angel will rip your yep. throat out in a mm-hmm. heartbeat. Um, and then lap up all the blood like a little kitty cat. Yep. Which is exactly why it's also king. Because it at its heart yes. at its heart, it's actually very, very simple. It's a very simple story of a horrible creature coming to an island and people being taken in. Especially the the Monsignor being taken in because he is because he genuinely believes that this is an angel and he has been saved. Yes, he, and that is that it's that belief that is so moving in it because he genuinely he looks at Lisa in her wheelchair and he thinks that he is healing her and changing the world for the better when actually he's just lacing everyone's communion wine with vampire blood. <laughs> like that's that's it. I want to ask you about the reveal that this was a vampire story <laughs> it's phenomenal it's it's such a pivot was it episode four was it episode four where, where it just pivoted yeah. so beautifully on its axis when you're like oh there you go it's a monster it's a monster story i fully like i was aghast mm-hmm. when that pivot happened and i fucking yep. love it it's got big you know we don't reference it because it would be too much of a spoiler at the beginning but like big salem slot vibes as well from stephen king huge i think like it's a very direct inspiration um and at the same time just like really deconstructing the idea of vampirism Mm -hmm. and really playing around with what we've seen so far and how could it be interpreted by someone who does believe in, you know, and, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, but like, you know, religious, religious stories and like the stories in the Bible, there are supernatural elements to it. You know, you're believing in the, in the text, there's, you know, there's angels, there's, there's the God, there's like all of these miracles and sort of, you know, otherworldly situations. So it's not that much of a stretch to think that someone who deeply believes in and preaches about this this book with these stories this faith would believe would truly believe in something supernatural that they encountered of course and and it's so what i love especially about it is the there's a moment in the first episode um where he is doing the communion wine and when the parents come out at the end riley's parents come out and they say oh i loved your 
your, your new translation of that text or, or using you've gone back to the original translation of that text and it was the text around the communion wine about giving life it was a very very specific text because he was already at that exact he was already at that point dozing them up and going this is the beginning i am i am giving you life this is of his blood literally it is his blood because it really is and i from the get-go the sh- the it is so cleverly and beautifully engineered into all of it. There is no like, oh, well, that wouldn't happen. No, it's beautifully constructed through seven episodes of... That's why we were so confused by the first couple of episodes because we had no idea where it was going because it was so beautifully hidden because we believed too, kind of. We didn't... We had to put piece it all together. So that's what it's... Honestly, it's, it was such a clever pivot. It was so clever. What did you think of the way that it actually upended and and used all the vampire film tropes that we're so familiar with the you mean the idea of the transformation and the the transformation the hunger the the pros and the cons of becoming a vampire yes so i like that especially in the fact that he said that he had been brought back to the best version of himself and that, of course, fits perfectly with vampire lore because, as we've discussed, the benefits of vampirism are you don't age. I mean, sure, you can't go out in the sunlight and you toast, which that very clearly shows. Um, but you also you have this thirst where you have to kill people, which would mean you, we don't like murdering people, but you can heal fast. And you have all these all of these things that can be read as miracles you know so perfectly translated to bible verse to the point where and i don't think we've we've not even mentioned eve is it eve it's eve of course it's eve her name's eve isn't it right she is again the most king character in the fact that she's she's evil from the get-go but she will always see the most literal bible translation She's the one that's coming up with the mm. fire stuff. She's the one that's boiling it down to the sheer, the really extreme stuff. And she's the only one that still holds on to those themes while everyone else has lost them. But she's turned into a vampire and she fully believes her own bullshit at this point. It's it's Bev. Bev, yes. There's a V in it. Yes, there we go. Bev, that's fine. I got it wrong. Yes, we can just continue with my okay. getting it wrong. Because it would yes. be better if she was Eve. But the fact that she was poisoning the... She poisoned the dog when she was alive. She didn't need... To, like, she's she's making her own rules. She's been her own god. Yes. So then when she becomes and decides that everyone, you know, she lets them out of the church. Like, she's just this incredible villain that's created by the end of the series. That you yes. knew she was bad, but she's a total villain. Proper villain. <laughs> And again, really, really, a really um, Stephen King esque character. Totally, it really reminded me of Marsha Gay Harden's character Car- in The Mist. Yes, like that was the, Mrs. Carmody. The, Is it Mrs. Carmody? Yeah, yeah. I'm not quite sure, but yeah, like the 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 character who's always in his stories, who is most prone to um, being radicalized. Yes. By by an idea, like they will take something, they will turn, and because they're not a good person, but they've worked so hard to convince themselves that they are by attaching themselves to this idea of of goodness and yes. purity, that they interpret in way too literal and like twisted way. 
it they they're just they're always gonna hurt people they're always the villain and again the villain in plain sight yeah but i loved about her that she never she never becomes a caricature no she's no she doesn't she stays she's like you can see that she's a person who really truly believes that she's doing good which is all the more terrifying really that's all the more terrifying. She is the, mo- the she is the most terrifying kind of character of that, especially of the small town. She mm. is the yeah poison. Honestly, who poisons dogs? Uh, just only evil people. Yeah, anyone who's hurt hurts animals. Evil by default. But I did find it really interesting this idea of them regressing to their peak self, mm-hmm. which is a phrase they use and made me really giggle. Um, is that it can it operates in slow motion yeah. in the show as well. Because he's kind of microdosing them with vampire blood it, through the communion wine, they they're healing very subtly. Yeah. So they're kind of being poisoned by vampire blood, but there's not that transformation, that dramatic transformation happens, and then it happens all at the same time, and like a lot of people transform very quickly. Johnstone. But those miracles that happen are because they're they're healing to what it what their bodies recognized as their peak self. But what became really interesting was happened to Aaron's character, who essentially becomes unpregnant. Yeah. She's pregnant at the start of the show. And a really dramatically heavy moment is when the baby that she was gonna have just disappears. Yes. The the ex- the the reason that I found it so clever and enjoyable was the fact that that was fully explained, but fully explained at a table, explaining through science. So I love the fact that the characters are explaining it through science, but we're going. I know this is a vampire thing because I've seen vampire things before. So it never treats you like you're stupid ever. Mm. You're constantly going. Well, I know this because I've seen. Buffy, and I know how vampires are transformed into other vampires. There's there's a whole feeding thing goes on <laughs> to quote Xander at some point. But like mm. the fact that she was told with no question of it that her that whatever is happening to her has caused the death of her baby. But it was a it was a horrible moment at the you know discovering it in those first it was in the I think it was the start of the fourth episode where the baby was just gone. Mm-hmm. And it was almost easier, it's not easy to cope with, but it was almost easier for us to deal with because we knew it was supernatural, if that makes any sense. That you go, Mm -hmm. well, obviously that's the case because vampires can't procreate, vampires can't have children, that's not part of that. But I think it does that great balancing thing of Flanagan devastating you, but you understanding it with a supernatural explanation, which makes it palatable almost because those mm. those are huge heavy serious tragic themes <laughs> absolutely horrific themes that i think i i think i'm not alone in the fact that a lot of us watch horror to be comforted and, and flanagan gets a little bit close to the bone because he's not he's not great with the comforting but he does balance it out and say well this is a vampire thing you know and, and it's almost safer because you're within those rules and within that framework you go well that had to happen so it's 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 not okay, but I understand why. I'm not sure if I agree with you on the fact that he's not comforting. Here we Ooh, go. Yeah. Because I actually found that, and perhaps more than with any other Flanagan film or show that I've seen, and I've seen them 
I've seen them all except for a few of his earlier films. I found this one to be the most comforting in the sense that every time there's a big, heavy, dramatic moment, like Aaron's baby essentially disappearing. And I use the word non-death before because she, the baby doesn't die. The baby yeah. essentially like ceases to exist, yeah, in disappears. A, which in a way is more traumatic than if she had had a miscarriage yeah. or if something something else had happened because it just poof. Everything is negated. Her entire experience, her unborn child is negated from existence. That's a really heavy moment. But there's a few other moments like that where other characters in the show treat these situations and these conversations, these reveals so tenderly that it's through the reaction of the people they're sharing this with that I felt the most comfort in these big reveals. And there's another scene with Rahul Kohli's character, Sheriff Hassan, who are really, a scene that I really, really want to talk about. And yeah. his character is fascinating. This one, you know, even the doctor who is, who's realizing what's happened as she's giving her the ultrasound there, she just moves her facial, her face changes, Yeah, but she's working so hard to try to not show it, to not worry her. And then every single kind of interaction she has after that, she's treated with so much kindness. There's so many there's so many scenes of characters just listening to one another. I think while I find that massively comforting, what I found I, I think what I find quite devastating is watching her mother initially, who has lost I mean, she is suffering from extreme dementia by the, the looks of things and she she's not herself anymore and she's screaming and she's scared. And she takes the vampire she's having the vampire blood from this daily communion, because as we discover, he loves her and therefore it wants to bring her back. And that is a pure love that he has for her. But it did break my heart, the fact that she was obviously I initially I was like, why have they got a younger actress to play an elderly woman? I'm really not feeling this. This is absurd. Just hire an elderly woman. I was like, oh wait, because you need to revert her. But but watching her come back and the the I think it's Hannah, the doctor, watching her hmm. react to her mother coming back was just I mean, I, I wept. I literally I cried when she came into the room and she came into the room with her clothes on with her clothes and she was sort of preening herself and she's like oh I've you know I've got dressed today and I think watching that is I mean it's wonderful storytelling and it's perfectly mm -hmm. beautifully human but it just made me it just made me so sad because that is a that's the human condition the human condition is that that is not possible that is not we will lose the people we love we watch them age and we watch them die gradually every single day and I think that's the kind of thing that Flanagan gets so right is mm. the super, the supernatural treatment of that and saying, look, this brings it back. But obviously he then balances it out because there's the whole problem with the bloodthirst, you know, so you cannot, you cannot exist forever and come back from the dead and everyone be happily ever after. So I think that's where I maybe find the comfort of, of a horror film, which is less human, where I can just watch someone be slaughtered and not really care about it to watching something of his that makes me so aware of my existence and everyone else's. And even though he's putting it through a supernatural lens, it still manages to make me go, oh, that's, yeah. that is sad. That's, that is, that's the thing that makes me 
cry about his work because he's so good at it. You really reminded me of I think I think it was in the sixth episode, um, the conversation between Father Paul and um, Sarah's mom, whose name I'm now forgetting, um, though the woman who de ages is that they it is revealed that the the, the doctor dr sarah is in fact their their love child and he's always been in love with her and has this thing of like you know we get a second chance can you imagine the the preciousness of this gift sure we're vampires but we get a second chance to have a life together we didn't do that we can do it now and and she says kind of almost verbatim exactly what you just said you know this conversation was like that's not how things are supposed to go no we live, we die, like we have to let it go. I didn't ask you to give up your faith and your your work for me. Like we we made our choices. We lived with them. Yep. That's it. We have to accept them. Yeah. It's devastating. It is. It really is. It is. He makes even though his um one thing, he should not be allowed to write any script that makes a character speak for a page or longer. <laughs> well, I was about to ask, what did you think of the soliloquies? Oh, jeez. There was a point where they were, Riley and Aaron were sitting on the sofa, monologuing at each other, and I was like, you need to yeah. stop this. And thankfully, he doesn't do it again until the very end. And then it was in a, it was, I understood that monologue, but the, you can't have too many of these, Mr. Flanagan, because you can't destroy me with the one at the end of Bly and then expect to conclude your entire series with one again with this. No monologues next time. I am, I'm not forgiving he as many of them. He a monologue. Oh. I have to admit, I'm kind of a sucker for monologues. Oh, I, lo- I love I, Honestly, I, I, I'm not against monologue, but there was just... <laughs> There was, there was a lot. There was a lot going there was on. A lot. In that that yeah. middle episode, there was a lot. It was like, are you gonna tell me an enormous story now? Yes, yes, you are. Right. And it's not that the it's not that the actors can't deliver them. It's not that at all. And it's not that the stories they're telling aren't good. There's just too many words in a row. <laughs> too many words. There was a lot. <laughs> too many words. And I mentioned it before, but I really want to talk about um Sheriff Hassan yes. and his big monologue and and in fact kind of the the tension that exists between him and his son and the rest of the town because they are practicing muslims and you know there's it kind of builds it's it's there even before the the story begins it's very obvious and then it builds it builds it builds and it's it's addressed head-on by the show itself yep. and it kind of puts um the sheriff and his son in a strange position where obviously they're not going to mass they're not drinking from the vampire blood slash yep. communion wine yep so they're he's kind of by default should be the the hero because he well he's kind of the the stowaway hero because riley and we should discuss how riley ends riley kind of <laughs> goes in like episode six not even episode five even four or five five. four or five he's gone yeah so he's gone our protagonist is like burnt that was a clever that was very clever that was very very clever i like that so what do you what do you make of um of raul coley's character 
I thought he and his son were absolutely vital. Um, mm. I also just love him as an actor. His performances are wonderful, but I thought especially the idea of he he's come from he's come from the city. He's obviously he's wanted to move to somewhere, and he tells that story. And also, I'd like to say that his monologue doesn't feel like a monologue because he's so good. That story, oh, I would have I I I I think I would have listened to him for a whole episode. I did not realize that he was monologuing when he was monologuing because that was a wonderful story. Um, because- Honestly, Rahul Kohli, like. I want more of this for him. Yep. He's fucking amazing. He was so good. He's unbelievably good in this show. Like, I I don't think... I mean, he was great. He was my favorite bit of Blind Manor. Yeah. But I think he's finally, like, been given space to flex what he can do with a dramatic text. It was, a, it was perfect writing for him as well. Like, he clearly relished that role as well. And I think it was interesting because... As I think it's important to say that as it concludes, it it concludes with everyone still being able to have their faith and understand mm. how they want to feel that the existence of that vampire did not disprove any of their any of their faith at all. It didn't. It really didn't. Um, so I I thought his character, his relationship with his son, the idea obviously he's lost someone. He has a lot of regret. He's again that same kind of character that has come to this island who is imperfect and suffering and has been through trauma because of the loss of the, the loss of his wife. And then watching his son and feeling the the pull of his son wants to be with his friends and witness the miracles that are happening and go and do these things. And he is faced with losing his son or letting his son go, but also losing a part of himself in the fact that that's how they bond is they pray together. And watching that dynamic unravel so perfectly. I mean, over I mean, that was only over seven episodes. I feel like we got to get to know these characters in a way that's completely unrivaled, really, because we're not even because of the slowness uh, and the slow burn nature of those first three or four episodes, we are in. So we understand these relationships. So when they start to fray and when they start to fall apart we fully feel them. And I don't think there's many series that let us do anything like that, especially with those characters. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at us agreeing over Flanagan. Look at this. I know. <laughs> Where's the conflict? Where's the, Where's the tension? No. Oh, no. <laughs> God, we need to disagree on something. Uh, mm. It's going to be hard because this is... Yeah, because um, I, think, I think we really like this. The only thing we disagree yeah. on is that... No, we don't. We just even feel the same about the monologues. Yeah, I love Sorry, the monologue. Sorry, people who want us. Yeah, <laughs> I did want to talk about the. We didn't talk so much about the horror elements because they're kind of spoilerific. But yeah. when the gore starts, Oofed. what did you make of once like the horror actually goes up to eleven and the monologuing stops a it's, little bit? When the horror properly so. There's one horror bit that I especially love, which was the burning of Riley. Oh, yes. The burning of Riley is wonderful because her screaming after it in that animalistic, awful way through the credits was just unbelievable. So good. She was, it was incredible. So that, and that was ending that episode there was incredible. But Mm. I also thought in terms of gore and in terms of real nastiness, when what happens to Joe happens to Joe, when he falls back and he clonks his head and there's just blood, and the Monsignor gets right in there 
right into the skull. Like he's not just drinking the blood on the floor. Like he's getting into the head wound. And you're like, okay, num, 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 yes, num, num. good. You feast. That's good. Delicious. <laughs> like that's when it goes properly full. This is what we're we're vampires. We've got blood all over our faces. We've got blood all over the sides of the church. That's when it goes proper blood spatter, and it it earns it. It totally it really earns does. every handprint of blood. And one thing we haven't discussed, Anna, we haven't discussed the Jonestown poisoning. <gasps> well, I was about to go there, but also I want to mention there's not that many jump scares in this show, oh, but one there's... that I particularly loved, like that not only made me jump, but also made me go, damn you, Mr. Flanagan, well done. I said well fuck you as done. well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is when Riley um is about to exit his AA meeting of one um with the Monsignor, opens the door and there's just it's a POV shot from his point of view of the vampire angel just flying at him. So the angel is flying oh. at your face as well, just whoosh. Yep. Yep. Bye Riley. It was a proper like three D moment. Yep. It was great. It was fantastic. It happens again. They do it again with um Aaron. The thing swoops yeah. in, but it's not quite as jumpy. But there's another yeah. proper swooping, which is very good. And there's also one jump scare that, again, I, I did agree with you. I swore at that one. But when the doctor was in the house, mm-hmm. Sarah was in the house, and she mm-hmm. was about to go up the stairs, and mm-hmm. her mum screams, because it had all been so peaceful, I was literally like, oh, there you are with your jump scares. I see you with your jump scares, Mr. Flanagan. You can have that one. So I think he only had maybe two or three in the whole show, but gosh. Yeah. Where they they were good. There was another one with Rahu when he's like alone in his office or in his house, and he even like jumps in the scene. Yes. So you're like, move there. Yeah, yeah. Damn you. Yes. Damn he's allowed it. them. He's allowed them. But let's definitely talk about the massacre. It was all the more disturbing because it was very Jonestown. It was so Jonestown. That one shot of all the little cups with the poison that we'd already seen because of the dog, was all the worse. That was, my stomach absolutely dropped. And it didn't matter that I knew that, oh, everyone's going to come back and be vampires. That didn't matter. It just, it felt horrible because you knew there's kids there. And that that's not an accident. Like that, ref- they know that reflects on anyone that's ever seen anything about those pictures or any recreations from any movies. That was a very, very specific decision to add to a vampire narrative and it was perfect it was it was it was a beautiful place to put it and it was almost irresistible but at the same time it was very disturbing before even the horror started because it completely i mean the jonestown massacre was i think still one of the highest like one of the largest essentially group suicides or mass suicides amount of people who who died in a single situation and there's significant like visual cues that are associated with it, like the Kool-Aid cups, but it's also this idea of there's you you can't escape. Like it's presented as a choice, but it's not a choice. Yeah. It's that it's that very complicated thin barrier between faith yes. and a cult. Like religion and a cult. And like we know that they're vampires, we know that the Monsignor is not He's not a cult leader, he's not a bad guy, but already he is interpreting the Bible text kind of through a prism of his own. Yeah. 
And of course, he's convinced people and he's got his sort of secret acolytes already that know the truth. But it really starts veering into that sort of cult territory, which is terrifying because that is the human part that's very, very scary. It's the part where people can believe in something so strongly that they will do anything their leader tells them to do. And that is, it's it, like, it rings too true. Totally. And it's that cult element. And it's that cult element which reflects so perfectly in the conspiracy theory and far-right elements, which is, despite mounting evidence to the contrary, people will insist on believing what they want to believe because you will give them a fact and it was, it was, is it called investment theory? I can't remember the exact word of it, but it's basically where you've put enough of yourself into what you believe. Therefore, you will believe it regardless of what anyone says. It's what we see on Facebook things about anti-vaccine, mm. you know, anti-vaccine. Basically, it's when someone says, but here's the proof. And then they say, but. There's always a but. And in this case, the but was a literal translation of the Bible. So even when Bev is being questioned of why is this happening, she said, ah, but it says here, this is literally the deep text. You know, so it's all of these layers where they're finding anything to, and uh, to, to justify their actions, basically, which I found terrifying in that because it's exactly what you say of them. It is, they don't really have a choice. They're, they're being faced with the end and they are they genuinely believe, thanks to the whipping up of the Monsignor, that this is the next level that they are ascending to. And that's exactly how people felt in Jonestown. They were being told that this is the solution. This is how you're going to... This is for the best. So, again, it's that balance of vampire and human. And humans are the catastrophe. <laughs> And there's an interesting twist as well in the dynamic that happens in that in that massacre, because the the role of the cult leader shifts yes. from the Monsignor to Bev. Bev. And Bev is an extremist. Yeah. Bev is a perfect example of a person, a character, who can know something deeply, quote it like go back to her memory palace and like pull mm. out quotes that are completely you know give her enough of a backing for whatever it is that she's trying to prove or defend she knows the text inside out but she does not understand it yeah. and that is like when that power dynamic shifts and she essentially like her worst things start coming out she wants all of these people to die like she wants to punish people she wants to choose who gets to be a vampire and who gets yeah. to be vampire food and that is fucking scary meanwhile the monsignor is like uh oh <laughs> not like dealing with the ethical moral and very real ramifications yeah, yeah he's like uh oh i done fucked up uh -huh. this was not what i thought it was <laughs> yep Oh no, the whole town is on fire. Yep. Fuck. Yep. But he then deals with it, you know? And that's when we get all those lovely relationship reveals to her and he sees her mm. burning down. He sees like the look in her eyes of fear as she is spotted drenching the church in petrol. And then the look in his eyes where we know he's just going to let her do this. There was no doubt in my mind. I was like, no, no, he's going to tell her 
carry on and going to turn around or he's going to throw mm. the match or whatever happens. And then even more tragedy happens, which I wasn't ready for. But um, yeah, his his switch to understanding what he had done was incredible. Mm. Shall we talk about the ending? Yes. Because, I mean... Fucking hell. No one gets out of this alive. No. I mean, two, two people, people do. do. That's mm-hmm. it. Out of 127. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually... In that last episode, I think I'd come to understand that no one... I actually thought no one was going to survive. I was like, that's it. Yeah. We are going to lose them all. Because her idea of spreading the gospel is literally spreading murder across the entire world. So no one's going to get out of this alive. And it's almost like they... It will be a global pandemic! Oh no! (laughs) Subtext! More subtext! But it's almost like the characters have already decided that they're not going to get out. And that almost makes Mm. it easier for you when you go, well, they've decided. So anyone that does is going to be a complete bonus. So suddenly it goes from being a quest for survival to a quest for how can we destroy this badness. Which I think is a very important distinction, which not very many things do most things are about survival at any cost mm-hmm. but actually that's not what they become they become they understand that they will be sacrificed in order to 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 for good to win which i think is a, again another bold move that flanagan just seems to execute quite effortlessly no pun intended <laughs> and it also becomes on a character level seeing how every single one of these characters deals with death, which was a topic that kind of was the subject of many a monologue in the previous episodes, including that episode that you referenced between um, Riley and Erin, where they literally spent half an hour monologuing about their ideas of the afterlife and death. And here we, we actually, we see how every single character reacts and deals with their impending doom and with death and it's quite moving the way that everybody does both vampire and human the way that the sheriff and his son die side by side him from his gun wounds and his son Ali from the sun the way that Bev like desperately tries to like dig a hole for herself in the sand she is a fucking rat she's a weasel even though she knows she's gonna die even though she probably deserves it more than anyone All on that island she's the one who likes is scampering at the last minute yep yeah, and she's... oh my god the monsignor the monsignor's death so just for people who can't see anna has her hands on her face and her eyes closed while she thinks what are you thinking it's just fucking rude, Louise. It's just rude how good it is. Yeah, it is. It's quite offensively good, isn't it? It's just... <laughs> they die like a family with his child who's a grown woman, like, dying in his arms, and he takes off the collar, and the woman he was been secretly in love with for, like, 60 years is also dying with her head on his shoulder. Like, come on, Mike. Yep. What are you doing How to dare us? you? I, I do think that I think it aired in that last moment. There had been the Neither My God to Thee had been playing 
consistently in the background as a as a theme, just very, very gently. And initially when they started to sing, I was quite terrified that we would just be journeying into Schmaltzville for the final bit. I did have a fear. I thought it did manage to dodge that quite neatly because I cared so much about all of them. But very, very, very few anythings could have got away with that in the same capacity. I don't think. I think most. Pe- I think people might have thought that aired far too hard into sentimentality because it did risk. It even risked it for me. And you know, I can deal with a bit of sentimentality when it comes to this. But that was the only point where I thought it teetered somewhat. But I cared so much that I was like, you can have it. You can absolutely have it. You can have it along with your monologues. But I think, <laughs> I think there there is a slight. He needs to. He needs to keep that in check. For whatever he does mm. next, that sentimental streak needs to be slightly t- toned back. Because, I mean, I was bawling, and I think most people would be. Because <laughs> um, that was a great monologue, but at the same time, I do feel it's important to say that that's it's pretty close, Mike. Pretty close. <laughs> it's almost a bit much, even for Louise Blaine. Even Blame. for Louise Blaine. Yep. Put that on the poster. <laughs> I did think um, this is the least profound thought I've had about this show. It, have you seen a film called Dracula 2000, Louise? No. I have heard of Dracula 2000, but I have not seen it. But I bet you watched it for your vampires, vampire series. I've watched it in the cinema when it came out. Of course I did. I love my new metal vampires, as we know. As someone who but, has discussed the long lamination of Kate Beckinsale with you, I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, it was called Dracula 2000 because it was released in the year 2000. Sometimes it's called Dracula 2001, depending on when it was released. You're kidding. Oh, No, I'm oh, not. Would, can I spoil this film for Please. you to make my point? Please. I can already so see the stars, poster. <laughs> it is Gerard Butler as Dracula right Um, and the origin story of Dracula in this film spoilers for anyone who has not seen Dracula 2000 don't (laughs) Um, Dracula's origin story is that he was actually Judas so he was the one who betrayed Jesus Christ and his punishment was that he would have to walk the earth forever and never know sunlight. Okay. So he, the vamp, like, and then Van Helsing is also Matthew. Oh, like wow. It's, yeah, it went, like, it went there. that was, listen, there is no universe in which the quality of Dracula 2000 compares to the quality of Midnight Mass or the depth of the script of Midnight Mass compares to Dracula 2000. What I'm saying is that the conversation between biblical stories with vampirism is a curious one. Yeah. And I, for one, instantly thought of Dracula 2000 because it's it it like it it links Jesus and his apostles with vampires, and apparently, you know, Judas was the OG vampire. Wow. I mean, but that's not dissimilar to what obviously. I mean, um, 
demons are technically the fallen I mean all the fallen angels so all the supernatural stuff like that that yeah. all falls into that like I that's what I love yeah. about supernatural is that the the existence of demons would by rights be balanced out by the existence of higher powers like you can't address one without addressing the other and I think it's particularly interesting in this in the fact that he's holding his rosary and he is getting he is bleeding because he's holding his rosary and that's the only we don't see garlic, we don't see steaks, he gets shot in the head, but that's how you kill zombies. So we don't actually see any testing of these vampire of this vampire or these vampires with any traditional methods, but we mm. do see his hand burning with the rosary. And not that that vampire seems to have any problems going inside a church or wearing the holy cuz he was wearing the that vampire's walking up yeah! wearing that cape with the crosses all over it and he's standing in front of the cross. So he can do all of that. But the Monsignor's hand was bleeding when he was holding that rosary. Mm. So there's clearly there's clearly some power in that, even if it's not the exact power that the, the very literal power of, of the Bible and, and literal translation that he's an angel. But yeah, I, I think it's I think that's very interesting. The iconography of vampirism in Midnight Mass and what rules it has and what rules it breaks. And I do kind of, I kind of appreciate it actually the, that some of it was left mysterious. Yeah. The fact that we're only hearing from the humans who have been turned into vampires, but we never, the angel vampire doesn't speak. No. He's not, he's there. So he's clearly a, a conscious being who is making choices and is having some sort of communication with the Monsignor. But he never utters a word. We never find out who or what he really is. Um, he is like almost, he's very animalistic in his design, but also in the way that he behaves. Only interested in feeding. Yeah. There is no, there is no explanation. There is no, you know, interview with the vampire monologue no. about him teaching them in senior in the way that his maker never taught him how to be a vampire. None of that. None of the like exposition, that stuff is left very much for, for us to to engage with, but not question too deeply. Yeah, and I think I never really. I I think I just thought that the either he never speaks to him, and he just kind of goes along with the ride, or he understands that he has found someone that thinks, you know, that he is a miracle. So there's an understanding there mm. rather than a... He, he's very, very animalistic, as we discover when the kids try and burn him and he's just feeding and that's it. Like, he just wants to eat. Um, but, there, and he, but he wears clothes and he understands... Mm. He understands how to make a good entrance in a hat as well. You know, like... Yes. He's, he has the... the he, there's enough he... human there. There's definite understanding. And, and it's almost... It's scarier without it, without it being explained. It really, really is. I'm conscious that we've been recording for over an hour now. For an hour and 20. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't talked about about Midnight Mass that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I think we've covered it all. I think. I think. Like, I, I think I'm going to watch Also, I think I'm going to watch it again. Yes. So I think I'm definitely going to watch it again. I've kind of watched it half because I... um. It's not a plug, but I did an explainer video for Netflix on this, and 
I got to watch it once and then I went through it again because when you do that wonderful thing where you go through clips of mm. it <laughs> to try and desperately label it up. So I watched it once and then I watched it again at like 300 mile an hour speed. So I'd like to go and watch it again at, at the right speed. That's so I can actually maybe properly, properly, properly enjoy it. But it's is magnificent, Anna. Thank you for having me to talk about it. It, it is truly magnificent. And I'm really impressed that we agreed on everything about it. Yeah. How boring. A shocking <laughs> lack of conflict. <laughs> oh, there's one thing we did not mention. And it's the shot oh. that really th- like rattled me. Episode one. All the dead cats. Mm. <laughs> I was literally earlier, I was about to be like, so what about those dead cats? What about all those little empty drained cats? That was the one where I was like, no, Mike. No, 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 no. This is this is He's my killed, limit. He, no. But at least he kills cats and dogs. You know, they both get, you know, not that it's, no, 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 not that it's a good thing. I just mean he's keeping balance. Yeah, okay. To the force. Well, can we just, of like, animal murder? <laughs> there are so many dead cats, Louise. It got, like, and there wasn't, <laughs> it got lifted. There was up. a murder. You, we got to see a cat murder too. It was awful. I don't like it. Our cat was investigating his friend and he just got sweeped, swept up. Oh my it's god. Horrible. I can't. Cat horror too. I cannot deal. Mm. No, not if cats get hurt. Cats are only allowed to hurt other people in cat horror. Correct. Not yeah. like dead cats being lifted up by beautiful Rahul Kohli and like thrust around. Like, no! No! Triggered. <laughs> Had to run into the other room and be like, Vlad, are you okay? Is this is this okay for you? Was Vlad wasn't watching, was he? I can't remember where he was. He was probably napping. He's napping like twenty three hours a day. That's fine. Yeah, he'll just cover his eyes and his ears. He's okay. Well, yeah. he'll ne- he's never watching this. That's for sure. No, no, he's not even when he's older. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Luis, thank you so much for talking about Midnight Mass with me. This has been a pleasure, as it is always, to chat too. Thank you for having me. So where can people find more of your work online? What have you been up to that you want to plug? Uh, plug wise, I well, first off, you can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon. And I am the same on Instagram. Um, but currently, plug wise, uh, Sound of Gaming is still on Radio 3. Um, we have a very, actually, we have a very exciting episode that I think I'm still under embargo on and can't talk about. But at the start of October, we've got a very exciting episode in the second where we're uh, talking about the survival genre for an hour. So on Saturday, October 2nd at 3 o'clock. I'll be talking about the survival genre. Otherwise, you can catch it on BBC Sounds. That's Sound of Gaming. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.